Hello and welcome to episode number 295 of Smart Podcast Trashy Books. I'm Sarah Wendell from Smart Bitches Trashy Books. With me today is author and editor KJ Charles. We are heading overseas, sort of digitally. This week I am chatting with KJ Charles about a lot of things. She started out as a Mills and Boone editor and then moved to writing, so she has a lot of perspective on the writing and editing process. We discuss plot, character, use of language, editing, and writing romance, especially in various historical periods. Now, some of the audio is a little bit muddy with the recording, and my apologies for that. I did my best to clean it up, and I hope it works for you. We also discuss what plot and structure are doing in a story and spend even more time on examining what erasure does in historical settings. When people of color, people of different classes, and queer people are erased from history, that has consequences, and Charles has a lot to say about those issues, especially why it matters right now that history is being actively rewritten as entirely white, rich, cisgendered, and heterosexual. You've probably heard me talk about that before. Other topics we discuss include fan art and works inspired by her books and characters. She has a whole gallery. It is so cool. We also talk about the use of magic in historical settings, world building rules that make for effective stories, and answer the question, is there such a thing as correct use of language? Spoiler, in her opinion, no. We also talk about the importance of own voices in LGBT romance and in historical romance and of representation of accurate history. She also discusses a very important distinction, the distinction between inclusion of diverse characters and writing experiences that are not one's own. I want to say a very large thank you to the Patreon community for questions and enthusiasm about this interview. It is really cool when I say, hey, I'm going to be interviewing this author and all of these people go, yes, and then suggest really cool questions. And also to Alexandra Vamp Addict, uh, your genre list is freaking amazing. And it's also extremely helpful to me because you named things in a list that I hadn't thought of in that order. Also, hi, how you doing? This week's podcast is brought to you by Lone Rider by Lindsay McKenna. There is nothing more rugged or iconic than a cowboy riding alone in the expanse of the American West. Luckily for our hero, he won't be alone for long. So saddle up and get ready to hit the trail with an uplifting read celebrating love and freedom as two wounded souls back from war find a healing connection. Lone Rider from New York Times bestselling author Lindsay McKenna is on sale now wherever books are sold and at kensingtonbooks.com. Each week, we have a transcript for each episode. That transcript is compiled by Garlic Knitter. And this week's transcript is brought to you by Whiskey Sharp Jagged by Lauren Dane. Victor Orlov took one look at the wary gaze and slow-to-trust personality of the deliciously sexy and fascinating Rachel Dolan and knew he wanted more than just a casual friendship. But as a natural protector... He also knew bossiness and overprotective maneuvering would push her away rather than draw her close. So he's going to use every tool in his easygoing, laid-back arsenal to convince her to take a chance on them. Rachel's flourishing new career as a tattoo artist has brought color back into a life previously damaged by a series of bad choices and violence. She knows that she can trust Vic. It's herself she's not sure of. So when Vic finally drops all pretenses of just friends and focuses his careful attention and irresistible seduction on her, Rachel knows she's falling hard for the laid-back pretty boy she's discovered as he relentlessly steals spine when it comes to her. 
You can find Whiskey Sharp Jagged on sale now wherever books are sold. And thank you to Lauren Dane for sponsoring the transcript this month. Now, I have some compliments, and these are so fun. To Maria E., you are the kind of friend people turn to when they're really upset because they know you'll give kind, fair, accurate advice and will always listen. And to Renee, the people around you know that you have a secret superpower, which is to always make others feel welcome and to have a perpetual, unending good hair day. That part is a little unfair. Would you like a compliment of your very own? Or would you like to suggest questions for me to ask our upcoming podcast guests? Then I invite you to please have a look at our podcast Patreon at patreon.com slash smartbitches. Patreon community is the first place I go to take recommendation requests, to solicit questions for upcoming guests. And when you make a monthly pledge, starting with $1 a month, you are making a deeply appreciated difference with the show. You help me keep going. You help me commission transcripts for older episodes. And you get to be part of a really fun community. I also want to thank some of those people personally. So to Jamie, Linda, Ariadne, Elizabeth, and Joanne, thank you for being part of the Patreon community. Are there other ways to support the podcast? Yes. And at some point, I am going to set these to music because everyone says them, but they're very, very true. You can leave a review wherever you listen or however you listen. You can tell a friend, you can subscribe, whatever works. But if you're hanging out with me each week, I deeply appreciate that too. Thank you very much. The music you're listening to is provided by Sassy Outwater. I will have information at the end of this podcast as to who it is. I also have an outstandingly bad joke this week. I am so charmed by this joke. I'm actually excited to record all of this so I can get to the end and be like, okay, it's joke time. And I will have an, uh, a promo or a preview of what's coming up on the site this week. So please stay tuned after the podcast interview. And I will have terrible jokes and fun things upcoming. As always, I will have every book that we've discussed and also the links to different things in the podcast entry at smartbitchestrashybooks.com slash podcast. And now, without any further delay, let's do this thing. On with the podcast. KJ Charles. I am an author of mostly queer romance, mostly historical, some of it paranormal. Um, and I'm occasionally an editor and I have strong opinions about things like historical romance, diversity, and um, not being a prescriptive editor. So ask me anything. Wonderful. You, you mentioned being a prescriptive editor. You're both an editor and a writer. What is a prescriptive editor? And do you still do some editing? I do a little bit, not very much, mostly uh, pro bono at the moment, um, if somebody needs a hand kind of thing. I'm, I'm not a prescriptivist. I, well, let's start. I was an editor for 20 years in British publishing. I worked for Mills and Boone for some time. I've actually got an editorial reader there, which is uh, quite fun. Now I'm nominated for an author's reader. Um, nice. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, so I have been an editor for a long time, both commissioning and working directly on manuscripts, which has, of course, left me with very strong opinions, and particularly about the kind of editing that puts rules before the author's voice, partly because I think that can lead to just really bad, clumsy writing. If, for example, you get editorial fads such as editors who insist that you can't use the word was, I don't know if you've ever tried to write a novel without using the word was, but it's a it, it's a 
bizarre thing to try and do and achieves absolutely nothing but you, it's, so it's these little editorial fads that uh, go through and I get quite annoyed about them because of course new authors who don't have exposure to editors and who are very often working with small presses and who might not be in with publishing will just do what they're told and I think it's very important for someone to stand up and say well hang on let's actually not try and squash authors' voices because they're not conforming to somebody's style sheet. I think that applies a great deal to, you know, to marginalised authors in particular who may well not have access to um, to the business of publishing and who might not know that they're actually perfectly entitled to say, no, don't do that. There's a magic word, stet, that means leave my manuscript alone. I'm not making that change. <laughs> but people don't know they're allowed to, to use it. Um, right. So I write quite a lot of blog posts in an effort to just um, help share a bit of information based on having spent 20 years on the other side of the fence. That makes sense. So in, in your perspective as an editor, you want to preserve and amplify the writer's voice above any hard or rigid rules about grammar, structure and content. My view is that meaning has to come first. Uh, you know, the author's voice and the author's meaning are more important than anyone's manual of style. It's only a manual of style. That's one person's opinion of how it ought to go, um, which is it's not handed down in tablets of stone. Well, I'll, I'll give you an example. I, I am obviously British. Um, Wait, what, though? No, I know it's a shocker, in it? You couldn't have told. Um, no. <laughs> I, I, I'm a Brit, and I had written a book about British characters set in Britain, and I was being edited by an American editor who picked up a use of a word and informed me that it was an improbable word to use because it was actually chiefly Scottish, and cited as her authority on this, Merriam-Webster, which is an American dictionary. So that was actually an American using an American dictionary to tell a British author how British people speak. I find this problematic, and I find it a lot more problematic if uh, Brit Britons were more of a marginalised culture. You know what I mean? It's yeah. Actually, yeah, it's not actually all right to impose uh, one particular style, one particular culture and say this is the only way English is spoken. That's just not how language works. So I feel it's quite important to um, allow for different diversity of expression, diversity of slang, diversity of um, different dialects and different cultures from many, many countries that speak English in different ways. Interesting, because we all do deploy English in very, very different ways. Extremely so. And I think it impoverishes us all if we uh, don't have a bit of an open mind and listen to what other people say. And people use language in wonderfully different ways and it can be intensely satisfying. And I really don't, I, I don't, I very, very rarely find somebody, a book that's using English in a way that I can't follow if I give myself a little bit of time to sink into it. Right. So, um, yeah, you know, I, I, I think there's there, there's a kind of, there is only one way to do it. There is a correct way. There's no such thing as correct when it comes to language. There is just what is used by the majority and what is comprehensible. Especially since it changes so quickly. Exactly, exactly. Well, I mean, the dictionary definition of literally, literally now includes figuratively. Right. It says it all. <laughs> But, you know, that's what literally means now. It's become an intensifier. And you can argue, you can get upset about that all you want, but it's it's how people use language. So right. you might as well just live with it. So you mentioned that you were an editor at Mills and Boone. Is that what brought you to writing romance as well? 
Um, no, not really. There was a quite a long gap. I was an editor there for several years, and you know, it's quite intense work. I was yes. often editing seven books a week, which is you know, you'd, you'd really be going at it because, of course, in that kind of publishing, it's because it, in those days, print was the primary. Um, it wasn't ebooks hadn't really taken off. It was primarily print, and you know, one couldn't miss a deadline. And you know, when you, when you edit seven romance manuscripts a week and you're that deep in it and frantically going through slush, I came of that out of that, and I didn't read a romance novel for about ten years. <laughs> I couldn't. Oh God, I'd talk about overstuffed. Um, so it didn't really dawn. I, in fact, when I started writing, I didn't actually intend to write a romance at all. I had thought I was writing a fantasy novel and uh, had no particular plans for there to be a romantic relationship in the char- until the characters met one another, right. at which point it all went a bit off-piste. <laughs> I meant for you to do this. Why are you doing that? Stop that. Well, is that, well on the contrary, it was like, you're, there's something you want to do? Go for it. Carry on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a long time since I'd written anything. I wrote a couple of books um, when I, you know, decade 15 years ago and they you know didn't take didn't get taken up and then I had children and then you know once my second child had stopped waking up screaming three times a night and I was actually feeling like a human being again I just thought I'd like to try and start writing again but you know I didn't have this great idea I just had a concept and then so once the characters went for one another and I was thinking okay apparently I'm writing a romance novel just the fact that it was happening was a joyful absolutely joyful Oh, cool. I have a podcast Patreon. And when I'm interviewing someone, I always ask the the supporters if they have questions. And I have so many questions from supporters of my Patreon that were so excited that I was talking to you. And Rode actually asked me to ask you, which is first, plot or character when you're starting a book? Oh, that's such a good question. But the answer is basically both, because plot is character in action, and characters are completely responsive—not responsive to the plot, but how a character expresses themselves entirely depends on the plot. So, I, when I'm writing it, it's an absolute pull me pursue kind of situation. You know, if the plot is going rougher than the character is going to need to go this way, and is the character capable of going that way? And if they're not, maybe I've got the plot wrong. But if they are, maybe I'll push them a little bit further and just see how far I can take it. But it's always a this, this way, that way balance. It, it, it's all got to support it, each other, is what I'm saying. Right. I suppose it's like a triangle. If you can't, if you cut one of the pieces out of it, the whole thing will just collapse. Right. And if you don't acknowledge both sides of plot and character, then you're just going to have an unsatisfactory book. Megan from my Patreon also asked me if I would ask you um, about how your years as an editor uh, influences or maybe doesn't influence your writing. Well, I think I've got a fairly good. I've, I've got a fairly good grasp of structure because a lot of what you do as an editor, um, particularly if you're a slush reader, which I was at Milson Boone, a lot of it is identifying the root problems with a book, right. which will. So you you had to get very good, very fast at um, delving into the substructure and saying, well, actually, the reason this whole thing isn't a satisfactory romance is you know, the underlying conflict isn't strong enough or, you know, all the conflict is external, there's nothing actually holding them apart or, you know, this particular arc is unbalanced, we get all the change at the beginning half of the book and then nothing changes in the second half, that kind of thing. So it's learning to um, look at rhythms and structures and being able to do that 
for myself, it's not as easy as you might think, because when once it's my book, I don't really see it as clearly. But I think that's been a quite a big advantage all the same. That is definitely um, something that I notice as a reader. Like, Why am I no longer interested in this couple? Oh, because they've worked out all their tension and now we just have to solve the rest of this other stuff that's external that I don't care about. Exactly. Whereas if the depend if the resolution of the couple's conflict is more interwoven with the external conflict, for example, or if you know you just delay their resolution of their conflict so they're really hating each other even while they're hunting the murderer down, and so on and so forth. And then it's just a matter of getting the balance right so that you, you never let the whole thing flat. Yes. So for a reader who isn't familiar with your work, is there a way that you introduce your writing or introduce new readers? If someone walks up to you at a signing and says, which one do I pick? Do you have a, a way of introducing your writing to new readers? Oof. Um, I'd probably ask them if they like paranormal or not. Mm-hmm. If they like paranormal, then I would press the magpie lord on them because it's my first book and it's the first of a trilogy. So if they like that, they can go off and buy lots more, which is always an advantage. <laughs> um, well, you know, <laughs> I the main chance. Um, so, yes, that's that's a paranormal historical. Whereas if they're more into the um, non-paranormal, the more conventional historicals, uh, perhaps a fashionable indulgence, which is the first of my Society of Gentlemen series. And if they're open to uh, periods that aren't the Regency in Victorian, which I'm very keen for people to be open to, I have both an Edwardian non-paranormal and a 1920s paranormal. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I pretty much just ask people, you know, what's your period and do you like it with magic or not? Everyone should like it with magic. I agree. Everyone should like everything with magic, but, um, you know. Not everyone does. That was actually one of uh, one of Megan's questions for me was how do you select the historical periods for your for your stories and your research? Oh golly, um, you know, it's completely random every time. It really is. It's I, I read a lot of history and I get well, I get I get caught up. With of course, things. I get very caught up with things, and I'll have so we think of England. Um, I mean that entire book. 70,000 words or whatever was actually inspired. You know the phrase, shut, do you know the phrase, shut your eyes and think of England? Absolutely, yes, I do. Yes. Yeah, well, um, it's used a lot here. And my boss, I was complaining about having to enter stuff into a database because I was still doing an office job then. And my boss told me to suck it up and think of England. And uh, it suddenly occurred to me firstly, that would be an amazing title for a book. And secondly, what kind of book would that be an amazing title for? And then, of course, the answer's got to be Edwardian, you know, the stiff upper lip thing, shut your eyes and think of England. You know, it, it felt very natural that it would be an Edwardian book. So then I just had to work out um, a, a way in which I could warp the entire plot around so it would fit the title. Right. Um, and the time period. Uh, but, yes, that was the inspiration for that. And um, other ones, well, I wanted to write um, uh, The Society of Gentlemen, books I wanted to write because the Peterloo Massacre is such an important part of British history and it's one that gets completely erased and hand-waved in a lot of historical romance, well most historical romance, which makes me quite upset and you know I had very much just wanted to write that because it's important. So yes it's it's very much whatever is bubbling through the top of my brain really. Uh, I, th- I, th- I think that there's so very much in the sort of mainstream of historical romance that ignores a lot of things that are extremely important in British history. 
And it's, I, I find that actually quite problematic. I find it problematic that you know, the working classes are generally almost completely erased. I saw an interview with an author once who basically said, you know, uh, a rich person would have regarded their servants like automata and, you know, there is no reason why I should mention them because my characters wouldn't have noticed them. And firstly, that is just not how human beings work and it isn't how those houses work. And secondly, actually, you know, my grandmother scrubbed floors in a big house and I have views on people saying she was an automaton. You know, I have very right. strong views. Um and I equally, you know, the, I feel it disheartening when there's class erasure. I feel it disheartening when there is erasure of the really significant numbers of people of colour who've always lived in this country, and particularly in Georgian romance, when there was probably 30,000 black people living in London, but you can read a Georgian romance and not see any evidence of that. Um, the erasure of queer people, the erasure of Indians in any Victorian well, you know, it, and it's it's an ongoing thing because there's been a kind of creation of this version of Britain which is incredibly white, aristocratic, and cishet, and I I don't find that a pleasing fantasy at all. I find that a very worrying thing that it seems to be a thing that so many people want. I, I agree with you. For me personally, as a reader who is Jewish. Whenever I see this very, very specific portrayal, especially in American small town set contemporaries where everyone is white, straight, cisgendered, and this weird non-denominational Protestant Christian that's like unspecified, not only is that a turnoff, but I feel actively unsafe in that environment now. Like I actually, I, I feel that that is, for me personally, alienating, and I cannot imagine the pain, actually I can, of seeing the fact that you you've been living in a place for generations but you're not portrayed in any of the fiction about it and certainly not in the fiction that that is deliberately about happiness you're not there what the hell yeah exactly you know if it, um, well when you see people saying oh well it doesn't matter about dukes it's just it's just fulfilling the fantasy like fantasy of what fantasy of everyone being rich and white and cisgender heterosexual because that looks like the fantasy i saw someone a few years ago commented that um a lot of the british set historical romance is basically hidden disguised plantation romance oh yeah that's what i thought effectively it's like saying oh look look here we're all white and um you know but you needn't think about awful difficult things like slavery but you know everyone's rich and you needn't think about where the wealth comes from you didn't think about how they got their money it's just this floofy dressed playground and actually my country's history is not a floofy dressed playground or anything like it given not only the amount of harm we did, but also actually the amount of diversity and the amount of difference and the amount of interesting humanity we had here. And, you know, not to get all Brexit about it, but I actually do quite resent having it rewritten for us by um, this very predominantly American strand of temporarily dislocated whiteness. And I don't like that. And I'm really glad that there's so much change and people are trying to do better because um, I, I feel like that's a trend that needs to burn itself out anytime soon. <laughs> well, I mean, as uh, Kathy Robbins from RT points out, we've been writing about the Regency like 10 times as long as it actually existed. 
And there's an awful lot of the rest of the world, and there's an awful lot of other time periods, and so many of them are so much more exciting. Yep. Yeah. There's. I, I, I want to read about new things. I don't want to read about basically billionaires in funny hats, which is <laughs> what your average duke is. I, I want. To, yeah. If I'm going to read a duke, I'd really, really like to read a duke that actually grittily engages with grotesque privilege, for example, and where the money comes from, and what you would do if you're a decent human being. Right. But actually, I'm, I'm much more in, interested in reading. Oh, I don't know. Um, a businessman, for example, there's a wonderful um, romance by Farrah Mendelssohn called Spring Flowering, which is, um, it's FF, and um, she's really set it in the sort of working middle classes. So the daughter is, the, uh, the heroine is the daughter of a vicar, and then she goes to stay with the industrialist family in Birmingham. It's fascinating. It's one of the most interesting books I've read in ages because it's actually engaging with real life in a knowledgeable fashion. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't heard of that book. Thank you. It's a, it's a great one. I mean, you don't get enough FF historicals. No. And, uh, I'm, I'm very taken with that one. Oh, it's very um, true. And, you know, for me, if in the field of historical romance, I think pretty much all the interesting stuff at the moment is not being set in Britain. You know, Alyssa Cole's um, Extraordinary Union and I Hope Divided and a lot of the other authors, I mean, obviously Beverly Jenkins, Piper Hughley, uh, you know, there are authors who do really, really good things, um, but set in actually America and uh, writing really interesting histories, yes. uh, which I think just have so much more potential and interest. And I'd love to see it extended more. I, you know, Lydia San Andres, who writes books set in the sort of... Um, Caribbean. Uh, Caribbean, yeah. Um, yes, more of that, please. Loads more of that. <laughs> because it's interesting. It's, and, it's t- and it's actually, you know, giving me a different society, which is what I go to books for. I don't want to see... I don't want to see a made-up version of the place where I live, but, you know, just the place where I live is not enough. With your books, um, you've written both male-female and male-male pairings. What are you working on now? I'm actually um, doing my first uh, female-female, or my first big one. I've written a short story um, which came out last year. But it's book two of my Green Men series, which is paranormal, set in the 1920s. So the first one is Spectre Dial, which is the Rita-nominated one. Congratulations. And then the second one – thank you, thank you. Um, And then – I've actually had a bit of trouble with it because it was going to be different. It was going to be a male-female romance, but the um, the hero inspected Isle, his cousin, return, his dead cousin, returned as a ghost, and she just would not go away. I mean, she was basically haunting me, and I decided she's she basically needs a story. So I'm not only writing FF, but I'm also writing Kind of Living Dead, which is <laughs> it's a bit of a challenge, but I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> So one of the questions that Rode asked me to ask you is um, your embracing and deliberate choice to write characters who are not of your demographic and background um, amid the clamor for more own voices writing. And she wanted to know, how do you research different characters and different backgrounds to make sure that you're staying true to the history and origin of those people in the places that you're writing about them? Um, a lot of 
reading and sensitivity readers. I mean, I think it's so important, especially with characters of colour. I I will absolutely um, always have sensitivity readers because I just think, you know, you can't assume you know other people's experiences. And reading is important, reading books by authors of those demographics, reading history, but... um, Actually, you, you know, there is no substitute for having a human being read over it and say, you know, you missed this. That doesn't ring true. You did that wrong. And I'm very conscious of not, you know, I'm not writing own voices. I'm very aware of that. Um, but I, what I what I try to do is I want I want to write diversely because, frankly. You know, this is the world I live in. I don't live in one of these all-white small towns that may or may not exist. You know, there's 48 languages spoken at my children's school. Um, I live in North London. This is this is the, the world I'm in. Um, but I try not to write someone's experience. You know, I, I, I write characters who are going off on road trips or magical policemen or um, I try and make them diverse characters because that's the world. I try not to say I'm speaking for people to, to be, for example, I, I wouldn't write a coming out story because I don't think that's up to me to do so, if you see the distinction. I do, yes. It's, it's about writing in a way that accurately captures the world that you're in, which means that you're going to see not just white people. Like, it's just a fact. And it's actually kind of startling that the idea of writing people of color in different historical settings is such an, an innovative or new or surprising aspect because it's not been done that long for not been done that way for so long. Yeah, it should go without saying. It really should go without saying. And, you know, I'm not, um, yeah, I, I think it would be grossly inaccurate if my historical romance is all centred on white people. I mean, I just think that would, that would just be wrong. So, uh, yeah, this, this feels like just writing the world as I see it, just writing the world as it was. You know, I've just, I've just finished a novella set in um, 1875. And to write that, and to uh, set in London in 1875. And if you write that and you're ignoring the fact that a lot of people there were Indians and the relationship with India was front and centre of people's minds, then you're not, you're not really writing 1875. Right. You know, so I, I, I feel there's, um, there's, there's got to be a balance. But I also, you know, um, I also twitch a bit whenever people sort of say why do you write stories about gay people why do you write characters of colour, I mean, no one's ever said to me, why did you write a story centering a white person? Right, of course You know, and, and yes Yeah, so I, I, I feel one, one day we will all be able to write exactly what we want and nobody will sit down and feel it necessary to ask why and maybe that day comes soon. Yes, it's, it's like a constant refrain of Oh, strong women characters, strong female leads. Uh, yeah. Cause, exactly. Because reality. Because <laughs> reality. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I do, I am, though, I'm vividly conscious um, that I'm not writing within my lane. And, you know, one of the other things that you try to do is you make sure you get out there and read and support um the people who are, because that's the only way things are going to change with own voices, writers and marginalised authors being able to do exactly what the heck we're like. Mm-hmm. Yes, I agree. Now, I wanted to ask you about world building. Um, you had, as you mentioned, uh, a bit of magic to a lot of things. 
And you have plots and stories where the magic and the history are very deeply integrated. What are your tools for world building that keep the magic within established rules? Do you have any uh, tips or advice for someone who's trying to write a magical world? Because you do it so well that it's like almost, I remember reading one of your books and thinking, well, of course there was magic in this time period in England. I utterly believe this <laughs> to be true. Well, why wouldn't it be true? Because it's just so well integrated into the backdrop. Of course it was true. Oh, I've, I've, I don't know if I've got any tips and tricks. I think you've got to have a strong sense of what it is you're doing and you have to be, you have to not let yourself cheat I think that's the thing. It's very tempting when you're doing magic to kind of tweak the magic system so that your hero can free himself with one bound, and this is bad. <laughs> actually, maybe that's it, actually. Maybe it's knowing the limitations of magic. Oh, you know, absolutely. What's, what's, what's the price? What's the downside? Where's the where's the dangers? What does it do to you? I mean, with the um, My Charm of Magpies trilogy, one of the important things for me was that it's addictive and corrupting, um, for example. And I, I, I think always power corrupts, and I think you, you forget that about magic at your peril. Right. So that was that was something that, um, yeah, it's those kind of things. It's um, being very conscious of how it works in the world and that it isn't a free pass for doing anything you want to, necessarily. Right, and it has a, a penalty. There's a upside and a downside. There's always a price. Yeah, there's, there's got to be a price for power. Right, of course. There absolutely has to be. I must say, though, I, I, having switched back between paranormal and sort of more realistic, it's not half upsetting when you're trying to get yourself out of some plot conundrum and you're thinking, you know what, if my heroes could use magic, this would be so easy. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, we're just going to drop a little bit into this scene. No one will notice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Go go with it. That'll be fine. Snap his fingers. So, do you have a favorite pair of characters, or a favorite book, or world that you've written in? Are you uh, do you love them all equally? Um, I think I like them all in their different ways. There's aspects of everything I write that, um, well, obviously, I hope I'm fond of it. Otherwise, it would be immoral to release it. But yeah, I, I did. I do love my Society of Gentlemen world just because uh, it was very, very closely integrated, which was quite fun to do. But because, for example, books one and two actually overlap and there's scenes that come in both books just from different perspectives. That's tough to write. Um, it was tough to write. It was particularly tough to write because I had the whole thing plotted out on um, Eon Timeline, which is like timeline software, and I had these three really complex integrated um, arcs going between the books to show the overlaps mm -hmm. and I finished book two and I went on holiday and I came back and we'd been burgled and they'd stolen my laptop and I hadn't backed up to the cloud. No, 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 that's terrible. Yeah. yeah, tell me about it. I Honestly, I was in tears. I was just mainly from kicking myself so hard. I now back up to the cloud. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. I mean, at least the, second, the, the next one doesn't overlap as much. If that had happened on but two, I really would have gone screaming into the night. But yes, so the, this is a very, very integrated trilogy. And because it's so integrated, um, I ended up just getting extraordinarily close to all the characters. So I am very fond of that one. And when you create a world that you really enjoy, it's fun to go visit it, hang out in it. It is. 
It is, yes. It's very tempting. It's uh, it's, it's a temptation I try and resist. I'm, I don't want to go into any series too long or to find myself extending it too much. But, um, yeah, yeah, the temptation to just go and splash around in this fun, enjoyable world is enormous. So you are self-publishing a reworking, a queer reworking of a classic. Yes. It's The Henchman of so Zenda is your book, correct? That is, yes. So it's based on The Prisoner of Zender, which is a 1895 pulp novel by Anthony Hope, uh, which is sort of one of my favourites in a highly problematic way. Um, you know, it's... it's an, yeah, I have a couple of those too. Yeah, well, if you're into Victorian and Edwardian pulp, as I am, you have to just come to terms with the fact that a lot of it is really problematic. And, you know, I make no excuses, but Prisoner of Zender is... Um, it, I mean, it's not... It's a horrific point. It's mostly the attitude to women that is really, really grating. So um, it's the women are just these complete ciphers. They just flit around the place. There's one moment where the alleged hero remarks to the reader, um, it never does any harm to make a woman a little bit frightened of you. Oh, dear God. Yeah, I know. I mean, tell me. So... You, you know, oh, tit, basically, what a tit. Oh. So, yeah. so I, I mean, and it's a terrific romp of a read, and it's highly enjoyable, and they made two great films, and it's swashbuckling, and yet, and yet, and yet. So I basically, when I was given the opportunity to, um, oh, well, I was asked to do uh, this Queer's Classics thing, and I thought, you know, that's a book that I've always wanted to rewrite, um, so I went for that one. Um, and I think it can safely be said that the narrator I have chosen for the book does not take that attitude to women. <laughs> and the women in the book get their own back in a big way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that sounds much more appealing. <laughs> yes, I think so. I think so. But it was fun to do. I basically, I rather than rewriting it from scratch i basically took the existing plot went with the premise that the original narrator was just some lying swine and rewrote it as the true thing that actually happens and it actually lent itself incredibly well to that because clearly the original narrator is a lying swine right let's not mess about here yes so no it was great fun to do i enjoyed it enormously when will you be self-publishing it 15th of may oh brilliant brilliant i'm gonna make a note yes not long it's uh out on arcs and so on out at the moment and right. getting quite nice feedback i think it's not like, I mean, you don't get a lot of swashbuckling these days i think we're sadly lacking in swashbuckling oh i agree swashbuckling is brilliant yeah it's i mean if you can't have fun with flashing swords and lots of innuendo laden sword fights what can you do right Obviously. When you pulled the uh, manuscript from Riptide, you also made an offer to help with editing. Is that correct? Yes. And how have you have you edited some of the other books that were pulled from that series? Yeah, uh, it wasn't from that series. I said what I would do is because there were, when that happened with Riptide, there was a certain amount of people saying everyone ought to pull their books because their behavior is unconscionable. And that's not really a very fair thing to say when... A lot of authors, uh, especially new authors, they're you know, not sure they can afford to do that. It's you know, quite costly right. and it's quite difficult and going about it is quite problematic. So I said anyone who is held back by cost or fear, um, I, would, I would do one edit 
for that person and just get them, you know, get them started their own way so they could either submit to another publisher or self-publish. And someone's taken me up. And in fact, just before this started, I was working on their manuscript and it's a cracker. So, you know, I'm, I'm oh, brilliant. Yeah, so that's quite nice. And I'm also working with an editor, an ex Riptide editor as well, because one of the things that they were doing that I was very supportive of was taking on more editors of color, which is very much what we need in romance. Yeah, for obvious reasons. Uh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think a lot of people suffered when Riptide imploded in that way. And I think if the outpouring of help and support across romance that came out for stranded authors and stranded editors, I think was very heartening. Yes, there's very difficult to to say to an emerging writer from any background, no, don't take this opportunity. No, don't talk to these people. No, don't do this. Even though for their career, that could be a very, very large opportunity. It's not, it's really, really, it's, it's been very harsh, I think, on an awful lot of marginalized people as well as emerging um, authors and yeah, people who are both. Um, it, it really did sets a lot of people back quite badly and I think the only thing yes. you can do is sympathize because the whole situation was absolutely impossible you know I, I, th- yep. I think you know the behavior that was going on there absolutely had to be called out and stopped but it, you know that's having a lot of impact on people it's been a very unpleasant knock-on situation I think the more help we can give each other in trying to pull through that the better yes especially because now there are so many more options for making sure that your book reaches readers. Mm. It's not like there's just one path anymore. No, it's very scary. I mean, I didn't self-publish for years. I wouldn't, I, I had no desire to self-publish. You know, I'm, I'm a 20 years lifetime publisher. Self-publishing held no attraction for me whatsoever. Um, right. And I probably wouldn't have done it at all if Samhain hadn't imploded. But that left me with seven books that I saw no reason to go with another publisher for. So I self-published them. And then that made me feel a lot more confident about putting my first um, new book out, which was Spectred Isle. Um, but, I, yeah, I, I, I was reluctant. Even that one, you know, we shopped it around various publishers. They turned it down because nobody wants 1920s paranormal. <sighs> and... Um, yeah, I, I, I like 1920s paranormal. Well, I'm doing 1920s paranormal, and quite a lot of people want 1920s paranormal. And you know, the reader judges liked 1920s paranormal, but there you go. Apparently, you know, it did not get um, picked up by a mainstream publisher. So right. I did it myself, and I'm very happy with the results. But and, and now, in fact, everything I'm doing this year is self-published, and that wasn't my intention. Speaking of books that you publish. Uh, you have a lot of things to say about not saying anything about reviews. I do try and keep my trap shut. I really do try. I don't always succeed, but I try. I love your flowchart so much, so much. How did I miss this flowchart? Oh my gosh. How did this flowchart come about? Is this for, was this instructive for you or for other people or both? Oh, Lord, I did that. That was, that was a couple of years ago, wasn't it? It was, um, it, I think it was when there had been a particularly big kerfuffle and very big name authors angrily attacking Amazon reviews. And what's it thing? Something about uh, people using the word bullying a lot, which tends yes. to really upset me because the power imbalance is not there. I understand why authors feel bullied by reviews, but it's very important to remember that 
that's not actually the power relationship. Yeah. You know, I, I feel very strongly that unless a review, even if a review is pretty harmful, you've got to look at how many people are going to read it and actually think about it and uh, and basically try and stay away if it's at all possible. Certainly, if a review is just saying, I didn't like this book, then just let the person not like the book, for heaven's sake. I mean, I, I don't like loads of books. It's almost my hobby not liking books, you know, <laughs> as with anyone who reads a lot of books. Uh, you know, let's, let's not be precious about this. People are entitled not to read books and not to finish them and not to like them and to have stupid reasons. Yep. I, I also think that... Um, it's very easy for authors to forget. And I, and I say this as someone who's published my own books. It's very easy to forget that readers are pretty savvy people. And we can tell when a review is more about the reviewer and that reader and their experience than it is about the book. I do a whole workshop on reviews and how to deal with them and how to manage them as a writer. Um, you absolutely don't have to read them. But more importantly, every negative review that has ever been published on my site in 13 plus years has sold copies of that book because someone reads that and goes, oh my God, I love all those things. Please excuse me while I buy this immediately. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the one that really sticks in my mind for me was um, I was flicking through Goodreads and I came across a book and the review basically went, this is absolute arrogant nonsense. The hero hijacks, the hero, um, that's right, he, he has some kind of heart attack and then he hijacks a camel, one star. And I was like, hijacks a camel? I think you mean one click. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and I said it on Facebook, at which point about 30 people went, yeah, that sounds brilliant. And the author actually had a big sales bump directly due to me picking up this this one star review. Well, you know, exactly. And and you'll see negative review that's obviously a lot more damning and that says, you know, this book really fails and so on. But even if it it does, it does. People are still allowed their opinions and getting upset because if if you don't want people to have opinions on your book, the correct thing to do is not to release your book. Yes. That is the beginning and the end of it. If you release a book, if you publish it, i.e. you put it into the public domain like that, uh, you put it out for the public to look at it, they get to have an opinion. The only way to have people not have opinions is to to keep it to yourself. Now, one thing I noticed on your website that I'm dying to ask you about is that you have a gallery of fan art about your books. I'm so lucky. I don't know why people, so many incredible artists like to do this but I'm just so lucky I just sit there in awe it's amazing you have incredible fan art oh my god and the Ned and Crispin comic panels um, oh my she is just so talented she's extraordinarily talented but really the yeah uh, I mean I, I, I worked with her very specifically and got her to do several things for me and she's absolutely marvelous but honestly there's the number of people who are out there just creating incredible beautiful things which leaves me in awe because I can't draw a stick yeah me neither (laughs) Uh, yeah and then people just come up with the most glorious things and I I, I retweet them on Twitter and share them in my group I'm just so proud of it it's it's really one of the most unexpected and delightful things about writing books that you, you get the these ways that people respond to them and I love emails I love it when people come and tell me something about what a bit meant to them but you know, seeing it visually, there's just another layer of awesome. Yep. And do do is there a, a book of yours or a series of yours that has inspired the most artistic or written response? 
There's the magpies. I mean, that is my, they're my oldest book, but yes, it's, it's the magpies. People get very, very into that one. I think because the hero has moving tattoos, which seems to catch people's imagination. Yeah. And also, uh, yeah, but others, others do. Yeah, it's, it's funny how they work out. I got some of the most interesting stuff was Society of Gentlemen. Because, um, oh, somebody did, um, Hattie Grace, her name is, she did um, these pen and ink drawings of the two heroes of Seditious Affair that basically just looked like drawings of the time. They were just extraordinarily beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and absolutely visualising my characters in the most perfect way. Yeah, I'm, I'm, it's, it's magic. It makes me so happy. <laughs> I think... People, I have that same sense that people creating in response to something that you have created is so inspiring. Mm, it really is. It really is. When people, I I don't read fan fiction, but I know people write fan fiction um, about my stuff. And again, it's just the knowledge that people are picking up your imagination and running with it and creating more. I mean, there's no greater compliment, really, is there? No. And so you don't don't mind that people write fanfic based on your work. That doesn't upset you. Not at all, as long as they don't send it to me. Uh, I think there's massive issues that would start to pop up if I started yes, reading of it. But, for, if people, but if people are writing it and they're not attempting to sell it, which would also be a massive issue, if they're writing it for their own pleasure and that of their friends, then more power to them. Well, yeah, I think that's marvellous. That's very cool. I know there are many writers who have very strong feelings against fanfic. And it's interesting to hear you talk about how much it's inspiring to you that people are creating based on your imagination. Though I understand the boundary of not reading it. That makes complete sense. That would be really problem. I mean, for me, especially with an ongoing Mm -hmm. series, if somebody came up with an idea and then I thought, well, actually, that's a really good idea, that would be a terrible thing because then I'd end up nicking or being influenced by somebody else's idea and that would be an absolute mess. If it gives people pleasure to read my books, that's brilliant. If it gives people even more pleasure that they can write stuff and that gives their friends pleasure to have that shared, then, you know, I have absolutely no objection. In fact, I know that I've got readers through fan fiction because people will say, you know, this is a great fic, what's the book it came from? And they'll go back to my work. Suits me. So the the question I always ask um, my guests is if you have any books that you would like to recommend that you have enjoyed recently. Oh, Lordy, yes. Um, let me see. My mind's going to go back. I'll tell you who I'm, two authors I'm absolutely glomming at the moment. Talia Hibbert, who is a British romance author of contemporary yes. um, MS. Oh, my goodness. My goodness, she's good. A girl like her is absolutely tremendous. If that's not book of the year everywhere so good it's got this absolutely adorable you know big powerful total wonderful cinnamon role of a hero and the heroine is um she's on the autistic spectrum she's fat neither of those are relevant to the plot that's just who she is she's got the most wonderful sense of humor oh it's it's a magical book i couldn't recommend it more and there's going to be more in the series everything by talia is great but i'm I'm, that one in particular was marvelous and then i'm also hugely into um Mina the Esquera, who is a Filipina author. I've been reading a lot of uh, Filipina romance, basically because I've been glomming all of her Chic, chic Manila series. And they, they're, just, they're just lovely. She writes these wonderfully feminist heroines um, and some great situations. And you don't have to read them in order. And there's about nine of them. And I think I've gone through them in less than a month. Honestly. Wow. Um, 
yeah, no, I've been absolutely powering through them and then reading others because they've got a very strong, a thing called Romance Class, which is a very strong group of Filipino romance authors. And yeah, everything I've read has been terrific, absolutely terrific. Um, so You Out of Nowhere by J.E. Trier as well, which is a slightly sexier one than most and yeah, wonderful romance. So I've been I've been enjoying those. I've been reading the Decade series, which is um, African American romance, um, one per decade from 1900 onwards. I don't know if you've come across that. So that is a great idea. Uh, yeah, no, that's that's been coming out. Um, I've liked the oh gosh, I'm trying to remember the Love Serenade. That was one I really liked, which was I think 1910, and then the one after that uh, that was set in the Harlem Renaissance as well. So, you know, it, it's such a good idea. Um, I'm trying to think of all the other things I've been enjoying at the moment. I have been reading a lot more romance. I, I, I tend to go in phases when I'm reading romance because if I'm in the throes of a book, I can't really read it and I go off to science fiction and then I go between books and I go back to romance. Um, one thing I read, if you're into um, paranormal and fantasy, is The Glamour Thieves by John Allman, which is just this ridiculously high-octane book with elves and orcs and guns and mages and things exploding and masses of sex on the bumpers of cars. And that was Ooh. terrific fun. Ooh. Yeah, no, that, it was a good laugh. Um, and I'm trying to think what else has leapt to mind at the moment. I think those are the ones I've been squeaking and yelping about on social media the most recently. <laughs> And that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed that interview. I want to thank KJ Charles for hanging out with me. This week's podcast is brought to you by Lone Rider by Lindsay McKenna. There is nothing more rugged or iconic than a cowboy riding alone in the expanse of the American West. Luckily for our hero, he won't be alone for long. So saddle up and get ready to hit the trail with an uplifting read celebrating love and freedom as two wounded souls back from war find a healing connection. Lone Rider from New York Times bestselling author Lindsay McKenna is on sale now wherever books are sold and at kensingtonbooks.com. This week's transcript is brought to you by Whiskey Sharp Jagged by Lauren Dane. Victor Orlov took one look at the wary gaze and slow-to-trust personality of the deliciously sexy and fascinating Rachel Dolan and knew he wanted more than just a casual friendship. But as a natural protector, he also knew bossiness and overprotective maneuvering would push her away rather than draw her close. He'll use every tool in his easygoing, laid-back arsenal to convince her to take a chance on them. And when Vic finally drops all pretenses of just friends and focuses his careful affection and irresistible seduction on her, Rachel knows she's falling hard for the laid-back pretty boy she'd discovered has a relentlessly steel spine when it comes to her, and she can't resist. You can find Whiskey Sharp Jagged on sale now wherever books are sold. And thank you to Lauren Dane for sponsoring the transcript this month. This episode was developed with the help of the podcast Patreon community. And if you would like to have a look at the Patreon, you can find us at patreon.com slash smartbitches. Monthly pledges beginning with a dollar a month make a massively appreciated difference in the show. They help me keep going, help me commission older transcripts, and being part of the Patreon community means that I tell you when I have a cool interview scheduled and I ask for your interesting and very, very clever questions. If you'd like to have a look, again, it's patreon.com slash smartbitches. 
And I also want to thank some of the Patreon folks personally. So to Aline, Elizabeth, Kristen, Deborah, and I love this username, What the Foucault, thank you for being part of the Patreon community. And of course, if you would like to support the show in other ways, there are many of them. Sing along with me. You can leave a review wherever you listen. You can tell a friend. You can subscribe. Whatever works. There are a lot of podcasts out there. And if you're hanging out with me, thank you. I'm honored that I'm in your eardrums. Like, not literally, just figuratively. That sounds a little creepy. But either way, thank you for listening. The music you're listening to is provided by Sassy Outwater. This is Caravan Palace. This track is called Maniac, and it is from their two-album set, which includes Caravan Palace and Panic, which I believe were their first and second albums. You can find these two, both in one package, at iTunes and on Amazon. You can learn more about Caravan Palace on Facebook and at their website, caravanpalace.com. Coming up on Smart Bitches Trashy Books this week, you did know there's a website that goes with the podcast, right? I mean, if you didn't, you can come hang out with us because we're always doing a thing, always doing things. So this week, our movie discussion of the synthesizer-drenched fantasy romance that is Lady Hawk is Sunday the 22nd at 8 p.m. Eastern. I hope you'll come and join us to talk about this movie. I have outstanding screen caps of various people in the background with faces that indicate they have seen some things. We also have reviews of new books, a new Covers and Cocktails, our Tuesday edition of Help a Bitch Out, and this week we have a giveaway. We are each giving away grab bags or boxes of new books. Often we get duplicate copies, duplicate finished copies of books, so we're assembling them into sets. You can enter to win one. It'll be a mix of genres, mix of formats, including hardcover, trade, and mass market paperback, and at least five books per box. You can enter to win beginning Monday, the 23rd of April at smartpitchestrashybooks.com. And speaking of URLs that I say very quickly, all of the books that we talked about, as well as some of the links to things we discussed, will be in the podcast entry on, or the show notes at smartpitchestrashybooks.com slash podcast. Okay, folks. It's joke time. I mentioned that I love this joke. I love this joke so much. It's just a little bit on the side of body, but it's adorable. Are you ready? Okay. <clears throat> Where do little jokes come from? Where do little jokes come from? Well, a dad joke meets a yo mama joke, and then they knock knock. <laughs> Isn't that adorable? <laughs> that is from, I believe this is Luminar uh, on Reddit. And uh, thank you, Luminar, because I believe that that person made up that joke and that joke is just charming me unendingly. Like I think of, and then they knock, knock, and then I grin like a big goofy person. Oh, I love it. <laughs> knock, knock. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Pulling myself together to be a professional podcaster. Knock, knock. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> All right. Yes. Back to Back to the outro, which is also a word, by the way. On behalf of KJ Charles and everyone here, we wish you the very best of reading. Have a wonderful weekend. Knock, knock. <laughs>